everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I am based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. As always, joined by my very good friend from across the pond in Derry, Northern Ireland, Glenn Hines. Hi, Sebastian. I am going to extend this a little bit because I was talking to someone recently, and they tell us that we have a, a riff at the start of every episode. Which goes we do. Yeah. And so... I'm just doing it a wee bit different. Hello, Sebastian. I've heard the same from friends and it's clearly a thing. And I guess other podcasts have their own things. Maybe we don't want that to be our thing anymore. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, this is a shout out to Peter. Peter, thanks. It's Peter. That's yeah. the same one. That's the, that's the one who told me about. So, all right. We each have one friend. There we, yes. go. There we go. Yeah. Shout out to Peter. Peter Reeves from Winston. Well, lives here near me in Winston-Salem. Ah, all right. Well, that was different. Yes. So where should we go next? Well, I guess we'll slip back into the traditional route and I'll ask you now then just if people want to get in contact with us, how might they go about doing that? Right, right. Well, on Twitter, you can find us at Change Talking. On Instagram, it is Talking to Change Podcast. On Facebook, it is Talking to Change. And for any requests, for feedback, for recommendations, for future episodes, you can reach us at podcast at glennhines.com. Fantastic. So we had a great conversation today with Jim Carter, exploring motivation and particularly in an intervention around obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. But before we get into the episode, tell us about what you're taking away from it. Yeah, Jim was great and very knowledgeable, very humble, but very knowledgeable in this field. Yeah, so I think it was a pretty expansive discussion about his work weaving MI into other interventions for people with OCD. One of the things that I really enjoyed learning about from him was his use of experiments clinically. It's something that I try to do from time to time, but the idea of trying a strategy or some kind of problem-solving solution without the kind of pressure or expectation that this is what's going to fix or cure or solve a problem for somebody, it's offered in a really client-centered way. And given that it's an experiment, you know, when you conduct an experiment in research, you're not sure what the outcome is. That's in some ways the point of doing the experiment. So in the same way, clinically, he invites his clients to do experiments as a way to explore different solutions and things that might work or not for his clientele. And we got to see a little bit of it, or, or I guess hear a little bit of it. So Jim and I did a role play. It's been a while since we've done a role play on the podcast, but we wanted to bring some of his ideas to life. Jim is playing the role of a therapist, and I'm playing the role of a relatively new father who is experiencing some contamination anxiety and related OCD symptoms in my role as a new father. So hopefully that is something that you all will find interesting and helpful. Yeah, it was definitely very helpful for me. I mentioned in the recording that, you know, I don't have very much experience of working with individuals with OCD. So hearing the insights that the gym offers us, but also witnessing the approach he takes where he is melding or mixing motivation interviewing with more traditional techniques. I guess that's for me is one of the takeaways is just as openness to learning and curiosity of what works that has facilitated that flexible integration of MI with more traditional CBT-orientated interventions and to supporting individuals with, with OCD. And as so often is the case when we talk to MI people, is that they're not necessarily very precious about the approach itself. He's not precious about anything in particular that he does, about any of the knowledge, and he remains open to the learning, and in particular, 
what it is his clients teach him about what works for them. And I think that's what came across for me was, is that's what motivates him most, is what is it that works most for his clients? And he will lean into that in whatever way supports them. Yeah. Actually, part of one of the things he was discussing there, you, you were mentioning how he leaves MI with other approaches, was something called metacognitive therapy, which actually reminded me a lot of our conversation with Robin Walzer, mm. episode 55, I believe, I just checked, on acceptance and commitment therapy. Yes, agreeing with you about just kind of, again, another example of how MI gets kind of woven through some of these other methods that we've learned about along mm. the way. It's recognizing that the one thing that all of these approaches have in common is that we're all talking about what works and what works exists without these theories. Mm. These theories are our efforts to explain what works. And MI is one of those. And MI is what speaks to us most. That's what has led us up along the way and shares his experience of his journey into and use of MI. So why don't we get on with the episode? Jim, welcome to the podcast. We really appreciate you joining us. As we always do, we'd love to hear a little bit about you, your background, and uh, how you got into motivational interviewing. Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. That's a great question. So in terms of getting into motivational interviewing, believe it or not, I was, I think, on the kind of the forefront where I was uh, in my graduate training in my graduate program. That was part of what I was exposed to as a PhD student. So I, I learned it early on. And it was one of those things, like most people, it seems kind of easy, or it seems like it kind of fits with what you already do. And then later on, a few years later, when I was a postdoctoral fellow, I was working, helping people with substance use challenges in the city of Baltimore. And I had a chance to actually to do that work, that motivational interviewing with our patients. We were in hospitals, so we referred to them as patients. But it was kind of a different experience, a bit humbling, because uh, learning it in school versus actually doing it on your own is, is two different things. So my experience was learning it, reading about it, wow, this is great in seminars and so forth, and then learning about it, trying to do it and getting feedback from the clients, from the patients about what it was like. So that that, that was kind of my segue into it. And then I joined Mint, Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, I believe around 2008. And the impetus for that was helping out on a project with implementing motivational interviewing in the Department of Corrections, California, CDCR, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. They were implementing a large training program for what they call the Division of Juvenile Justice. And I was helping out with that. I was helping. So I thought to myself, if I'm going to be involved in this big training process, I really ought to make sure that my understanding and my knowledge of MI and the things on helping people with the training are actually up to speed and <laughs> consistent with what other people are doing. So that was my main motivation for joining Mint. I've been a member since then, so I'm still a student. I'm still learning, <laughs> as I, I kind of think we all are. It's interesting that given today we're going to be talking a bit about OCD and the interventions that can be done with it, and very often people associate that with the likes of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and you talked mm -hmm. about early exposure, but also the idea of recognizing that the when you were introduced to motivation interviewing and then the doing of the motivation and they were quite different things. And again, for many of us, we'll recognize that that's so often the case of when we're trying to help people, that the idea of wanting to change and the, and the change itself are very, very different. And that's where motivation is the vehicle to help people transport themselves from the idea to the doing. That's what I'm curious about. When you were going through that transition for yourself then, Jim, what was it like for you? How did you successfully translate from the desire and the enthusiasm of, having the concept of MI, 
the actual practice of MI. Oh, that's an interesting question. What was it like for me? So I, I guess the, the word is humbling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's humbling in the sense that, like you said, the best of intentions and in, in practice and role plays and so forth, they don't necessarily pan out when you're meeting with other people because everyone's so different. And so as I've developed more understanding and experience and comfort and ability to not only use MI, but help other people weave it into the work that they do. I guess I've become less focused on techniques and more focused on principles and ideas and strategies about how it works and, and why it works. To me, the in the most recent descriptions of MI by Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick, they try to make it a little bit simpler, right? They say, it's in essence, it's a conversation about change or something like that. I don't want to misquote them, but something like that. And I, I think that's helpful. And to think in, in broader strokes, to think about what's going to be really important for us to have a good working relationship so that we really understand each other. We really kind of have shared goals and I can help support you in those goals. To me, that's been the big thing. It's, it's kind of like, I think at one point in my training, I had a, a mentor, and don't ask me who's, who said this because I'll forget, but I'm sure probably you've had similar experiences where you go through a lot of technical training, a lot of bits and pieces of how to, to be an effective or helpful therapist. And then in the end, they say something like, now forget everything I just taught you and go be with that person. Go be a human. Go And kind of like that concept, I think, is so important as we learn anything. And certainly it's been my experience with MI is to come back to being humble and saying, let me try my best. Let me keep learning. Let me keep keeping open to feedback from, from my clients, because ultimately I think that's our best teachers are our clients. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that quote. I have a similar, like my supervisor once told me that for me, as the way I understand it, it was Salvador Mnuchin, but I'm sure a lot of people, he was a famous structural family therapist, you know, to learn as much as you can about whatever it is you're learning and then forget it all and just be with the person in front of you or in his case with the families in front of you. But uh, it's funny that you have a, your own version of that quote. Yeah, well, I'm sure yeah, someone so, said it to me. I probably was not an MI yeah. or motivation interviewing mentor or anything like that. Probably, but, but yeah. just stay with me. And, and I, yeah. I think that's been helpful to not get so focused on a particular thing because everyone's different. It's all comes down to individuality and everything's within a cultural context. Everything is within right. that person's understanding. And so what I say or what I do may be really helpful or maybe interpreted in a very unhelpful way. What's more important is that I can recognize that I now have the skills and the abilities to quickly see and recognize a person's reaction. And I have this thing in the back of my mind, this arbitrary concept that someone shared with me called change talk and sustain talk. And we're in sync or we're not in sync and there's discord between us. And so those kinds of ideas are just so valuable, so helpful in in terms of working with other people, of course. Yeah. So as you're learning to apply MI, both the the specific techniques, but also appreciating the kind of bigger picture of it, you're kind of moving along in your training and your work experience from substance abuse focused in your postdoc and then working in corrections. And then, you know, eventually you kind of get into a more, I guess, specialized area of practice for, for lack of a better term around obsessive compulsive disorder. But if you could just kind of keep guiding us through the story until, until you yeah, sure. OCD. Helping people with OCD is one of many things I do. I'm still still doing motivational interviewing training and consultation. I still work, still involved in a contract with helping people who are post-incarceration. The, the term we use in corrections is re-entry. Helping people who are coming back to our communities from incarceration with the overwhelming multiple demands that are required of them to successfully 
quote, reintegrate into our, our communities. I help with a project related to uh, employment because employment's not just about making money and having a job. It's about your identity, who you are, and, you know, the people you hang out with, people you interact with. A majority of <laughs> we spend, you know, up to eight hours a day with 10 hours a day with our colleagues and stuff. So it's really a lot about personal growth, personal development. So um, so I'm very proud of, of that work, that project that I continue to do. At the same time, I've always maintained an interest and had a passion for helping people. So I've, I've had a clinical practice on some level for you know roughly 20 years. My practice started with a focus on cognitive behavioral therapies. And I'll say around 2000, when you identified yourself in my community as a cognitive behavior therapist, there were only a few of us who were saying this was our area of specialty and, and training. And so I tended to help people who were that approach, the cognitive behavior therapies would be most helpful. So things like depression, anxiety, and so forth. And what I quickly learned was that, gosh, there's a lot of people in the community who have OCD or OCD, you know, I kind of use this phrase OCD spectrum, somewhere along the spectrum where they have some mild to moderate OCD related challenges. I, of course, had some background and training in how to help people with these challenges, but it was right away, I was like, wow, I need to go back and get more support. I need to get more information, more training. And I was very fortunate that I had the luxury of having a real expert, someone who was really knowledgeable about OCD in my internship training. And so I reached out to him and, and formed a, a mentorship where he was able to give me more information, give me more guidance. And I, I think that that was probably one of the most important things was was learning from from someone who really had a lot of experience and training in, in helping people with OCD. So I'd say, again, it was mostly what motivated me or what kind of shifted me was that this is what I, you know, my clients were telling me. This is what they want to help with. Yeah, so throughout everything you've been describing, that thread of curiosity in you, what was it that was working? What was it that was going to help people? And the desire within you to learn, to recognize there's things I, I know, there's things I have yet to learn. And added to that then is the piece where you were willing to accept help from others and gaining that understanding, gaining that. And it sounds like you've remained in that place. And that's one of the things that, that's so strong for you is that, that, that you're continuing to see opportunities for future development or ongoing development for yourself. And when you mentioned OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, you also meant, and introduced this idea of a spectrum. And I guess just for the audience, can you maybe just describe a little bit more about what is OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and what do you mean by this spectrum? Okay. OCD, I'd say the current description of what it is, you, we would have to kind of look at criteria in manuals. We would look at the ICD or here in the United States, we use what we call DSM, which is Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is created by the American Psychiatric Association. So it's a group of experts who come together and kind of have some sort of consensus. Before I kind of give a description of that, I want to say that these things change over time, number one. <laughs> so, you know, what we're talking about today, I don't know if we'll talk, we'll use the same criteria in 10 or 20 years from now. So I, I kind of always start by, by, by saying that. It's not like we can put this under a microscope and say, aha, there it is, there's the OCD. There's no such thing, we made it up as a society. But nonetheless, it's still very helpful for us to have a shared understanding of, of what it is. But in essence, what I would say is it's a pattern, it's a process that happens where people experience typically both obsessions and compulsions. And obsessions are thoughts, images, or impulses that typically are very distressing to the individual. They, they cause a lot of 
unpleasant emotions, feelings like anxiety or fear, uh, intense fear, could be feelings and emotions like disgust or guilt, shame, you know, like really challenging, difficult emotions for, for us to, to experience and to endure, certainly on the regular. So there's that aspect where it's a thought, image, or an impulse that the individual experiences uh, with a, usually, like I said, a lot of strong emotion. And these tend to be thoughts that are um, often described as intrusive, meaning, I don't know why I thought of that. It wasn't like I was wanting to think of that. I was just going about my day. And all of a sudden, something popped into my head that I didn't want to, you know, it was very intrusive. And it tends to kind of be repetitive. It's a thought that happens over and over again. We always end up kind of at some point going into typical examples, kind of areas of obsession. So one area, a typical area of obsession would be something related to like um, contamination. People talk about contamination, OCD. It's something that we all think about, right? We all worry about. And now with the experience of the, the global pandemic with, you know, the SARS-2 COVID pandemic, people who don't have OCD now kind of have a little bit more, I think, insight and empathy of, of what's it like, because we all kind of went through that, right? And I remember when the pandemic, we were all kind of trying to understand what was happening and how COVID was transmitted. I remember getting food and bringing it home and wiping it down. <laughs> with like a rag and cleaner, because I didn't know, like I was, I was scared. But people with OCD would have a thought like that. And it could be, it's typically themed. And then they have this other response, which is a compulsive ritual. And so the idea is a compulsive rituals is something that they've learned to do. It's an adaptation, you could say, to neutralize the obsession. So it could be like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so concerned about getting, you know, stick with contamination, common contamination would be, I'm worried about HIV. So I'm worried if I, if I go out my house and I touch the elevator button, how do I know I'm not going to get HIV? With someone with OCD, would be just terrified I'm going to get going to get HIV, or I'm going to spread it to my, my family member, to my loved one. And so, what would the person do? And I say, well, I know I can't get HIV by touching an elevator button. I've read what the experts have said at the CDC and the World Health Organization. I, I know it's not really true, but I still have this intense fear. I still have this this thought, this belief that that can happen. And so. To neutralize that, to neutralize the the risk of it happening, to neutralize the risk of me getting HIV or, or spreading it to someone, I'm going to do something. And so that would typically be the compulsive ritual would be to sanitize their hands. And what happens is usually not like, uh, oh, I hit my sanitizer. It's it's usually very specific. I put four squirts of sanitizer on my hands and I rub my hands for 25 times. And during the 25 times I'm rubbing my hands, if the thought of HIV pops into my head, then it wasn't effective. I'm going to do it again. And so there's kind of this feedback loop in OCD where people do things repetitively over and over and over again. And they kind of describe it as they get stuck, kind of pulled into this like pattern of going back and forth with their obsessions and their ritualistic ways to try to deal with it. And they'll say, it's going on. It takes hours and hours. I'll get stuck in this. I'm trying to leave the house and it might take me, you know, an hour and a half to get out and get past through the elevator. So it can really be very impactful on the person's life. It can make it very hard. There's a lot of internal distress. And of course, it can affect the relationships. You can imagine that's, that's very difficult if you're a parent and you're, <laughs> you're taking your child to school and you feel like you have to go back and sanitize your hands over and over again and that kind of thing. So can really interfere with a lot of aspects of a person's life. So that that's kind of a description of OCD. I don't know if that's what you're looking for in terms of like a, a more technical definition. There are, there are guidelines in terms of how long you know a person spends and 
and how much time that they're impacted. But I don't think we need to get into all that. But basically, that's kind of the gist of it. And these other spectrum things are other kinds of challenges people have, like a common one would be something like hair pulling. The technical term is uh, trichotillomania, where where people will find that they pull hair from their eyebrows or from some other spot. And it can be a coping strategy, and pretty soon it becomes difficult to stop. And again, it's, it's kind of a feedback loop. So those would be other kinds of things related to OCD spectrum stuff. Sorry to go off on such a technical description. No, no not at all, Jim. That was a, a wonderful breakdown and, and a really uh, you know, efficient piece of the time there. We really got a good sense of what that's like and not just how, I suppose, distracting or consuming the obsessive like mental part of it can be, which sounds quite difficult in and of itself, but how that translates to this, the behavioral patterns that can literally freeze people in these moments and moments that lead to other moments. And then after a while, perhaps hours of trying to manage and avoid or turn off a particular thread that's showing up for them. And that just sounds quite debilitating. And as far as the spectrum goes, like, so like something like trichotillomania or this hair pulling, is that like a specific kind of compulsion the general framework is similar where there's an obsessive quality that the hair pulling is the behavior that then alleviates the obsession or does it not necessarily have to play out that way? That's a great question. And so, yeah, it's, I would say quote the, the experts, the OCD and OCD spectrum experts, which again, that's not my area of research. Yeah. I think that they would love to debate that and talk about that and kind of get into the details about things like health anxiety and stuff like that. Is it a form of OCD? Is it not? What is OCD? What's the underlying thing? And and for me, it's all very interesting. And for me, it's all black boxes, meaning I don't know. And and I'm I'm able to to humbly say, I I don't know. I think if you ask some different experts, you might get slightly different answers. But I think there's a general consensus that these things are related, how they're related and and so forth. It depends on, on who you ask, I would say. I don't mean to avoid your question, but yeah, I just I'm really not uh, authoritative resource in that regard. So I'll just punt. <laughs> yeah, so in some ways, yeah. it's, it's, did you recognize there are people and the approaches they use that understand the mechanics of the obsession, understand the layers of the obsession is really important yep. to the intervention they offer. Whereas for you, you recognize there is something going on. It can be explained, but not by me. But that doesn't, mm-hmm. that doesn't prevent me offering an intervention to be supportive. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, what do I know? What am I good at? What am, what can I offer and help people with? And it's it's in those the therapies, it's in the the strategies and approaches. Trying to be practical. Here's what I can share with you. Other people have found helpful. Do, do you want to try these? And I try to frame everything as an experiment, meaning I don't know if this is really going to work for you. What works for one person may or may not work for the next. But yeah, we get into these tough questions of what is OCD. And here's one thing I, I can I can share is that. It's uh, kind of even just what is it? What causes it? I don't think, again, we're, there are people who know a lot about this. And I don't mean to minimize their expertise and there would be a different podcast. But I'll say this, that there are lots of people who study some of the biological underpinnings. What's going on? Why, why is OCD happening? And we know, for example, that there's a certain pathway, a certain way that some people can develop OCD. It's usually it's children. It's referred to as PANDAS. It's an acronym for pediatric. And typically what happens is that the child gets an infection, gets a 
the prototypical infection is, is streptococcus A or strep A. For some reason, some children, their reaction to it, we believe this is an immunological or kind of autoimmune sort of thing. The body reacts in such a way where literally one day they don't have OCD. Two days later, a week later, this child has severe OCD to the point where they won't leave their bedroom or they refuse to eat or they refuse to use the restroom or something. They're, I mean, I'm talking about like severe uh, onset you know, rapid onset of OCD. And then there are other things that we know, like when people have children, um, when, when a baby's born, so a couple has a child, the mother, father, 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 mother, mother, they're at risk of developing OCD. And it has nothing, well, it may have something to do with biology in, in some cases, but in other cases, certainly with, you know, as a, as a father, you can develop OCD from that, that stress, the environmental challenges, and the specific unique things about being a parent. Being a parent catapults us into a tremendous amount of responsibility, a tremendous amount of fear that we never had before. And so those psychological challenges, depending upon the person, can, can be another pathway into developing OCD. So two very different things. One is probably mostly biological or, you know, neuroimmunological pathway. Another is nothing to do with biology, probably has some more to do with the stress that a person's under. So um, to me, that's fascinating. And to me, if I, I look at that and I say, it's humbling. I, I, I don't, I can't make a lot of sense of it. Just that I understand that there are probably many ways where people can develop OCD, which means to me, there's probably many underlying causes. And despite that, here's the best that I can offer you. I'm not an expert in immunology. I'm not a, a physician. I'm a psychologist. So I can offer you some ideas and strategies about how to, how to deal with OCD if you have it, if you're kind of caught in this, trapped in, this, in these cycles. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's, it's humbling. Yeah, your passion is quite clear. Glenn referenced your curiosity as well. But uh, you know, it's really palpable to hear you talk about the ways that people get stuck, but then your desire to be helpful to people is, is also quite clear. And maybe along those lines, if we could start hearing a little bit about what you do to try to help people. You, you hinted a bit about some of the ways that you approach this, like thinking of things in terms of experiments. It certainly seems that your humility will also kind of play a role in, in terms of the interpersonal part of it. Yeah. I mean, just how would you describe how you go about helping someone with OCD both in terms of your use of MI and then maybe some other strategies that you found helpful along the way? That's, that's a great question. There's a lot to unpack there. Maybe what I could start by saying is how does MI fit into where I've arrived now? So where I've arrived now is I have a treatment a clinic, an OCD treatment clinic. It's called OCD123. And OCD123 is, I'm hoping it's kind of catchy. I don't know if it's catchy or not, but uh, hopefully it's, it catches on. I've just reinvented myself in terms of this clinic here in the last few, uh, couple few years. But the idea of it was it can be so overwhelming and so challenging as a consumer, as a client, someone trying to find services. I really wanted to, you know, infuse what I call client-centered or, you know, which to me is a big part of motivational interviewing is, is it's client-centered, meaning like what's going to work best for this person? How are they going to be able to understand and access these services? Because to me, it starts with the spirit of MI. We, we as motivational interviewing trainers, I, I know you're you're familiar, but maybe not everyone's familiar with this acronym. We, we say pace and partnership, acceptance, and so forth, and compassion and, and empowerment. But 
in order to do that, I really feel like because there's so much to this treatment, we have to do some really simple, basic things at the beginning. And that is transparency. I kind of want to lay it out. So compared to other OCD treatment clinics, if you were to go to my website, you're going to find so much information there about the way I do treatment. Some of it's very basic, like what's the cost? <laughs> so we have this, this new thing in the United States where we're supposed to have this thing called No Surprises Act, where we're, we're all supposed to kind of put what are the costs of treatment? So clients can understand, can I afford this? Can I utilize my insurance to get my, my treatments paid for and stuff like this? And I'll challenge you when this is over. You go and look, not just on OCD treatments, but just go look at mental health treatments. See if you can find out, go look at their websites and find out how much it's going to cost to go there. I think you're going to have a tough time to find that information, but it's up on my website. And so if anyone who looks at it, they can see that, you know, depending on the course of the treatment, here's the actual cost out of pocket the most that's going to cost you. And here's information about using your insurance. And you know what I put CPT codes, I put the procedure codes, you can call your insurance company and say, I want to do this treatment and these the procedure codes, how much of, of the treatment will you pay for? When I say it's from a client centered, you know, I kind of think to myself, if I'm in that situation, that's important to me. You know, if I'm trying to get treatment and I have to pay a certain amount of money, I need to know, can I afford it? Things like that were, to me, it's real important to be as transparent because when we give that information to our clients, it allows them to make decisions. So instead of me saying like, well, we'll get to that. Let's have a meeting. Let's sit down. You and I talk about it. And after you've invested a bunch of time and energy learning about me and my, my clinic and my program, what I have to offer, then I'll tell you, here's the cost. <laughs> and it just seems to me a little... I don't know. It's a, there's, there's a power imbalance to begin with. And so here's a way we can try to, I, it's, it, the power imbalance is still there, but here's how I can acknowledge it. Here's how I can give my clients an opportunity to make decisions, to be empowered. So I don't know how they can do that otherwise. The other thing I emphasize a lot is there's kind of a roadmap in the treatment. That's the one, two, three part. It's in three phases. So phase one is evaluation. Phase two is preparing for the typical treatments that people use. In, in OCD treatment, which are exposure and ritual prevention or ERP and metacognitive therapy. Those are the two main therapies. But we need to prepare people for this because not everyone benefits from it. Not everyone is willing to do it. Not everyone is, is going to want to do all of the aspects of those treatments. So I try to spend time to kind of make sure they understand, well, here, here are your choices. Here are your options. And now that you hear more about these choices and options, what do you want to do? What would work for you? You know yourself better than anyone else. That's the kind of partnership we want to develop is making choices together, kind of a, a collaborative case conceptualization in terms of what's going on and, and what you want to do. Because ultimately, it's their life. It's so, uh, it's, of course, it's their, their goals, what, what they want to do in terms of, of treatment. And so th there's that. I would say the other big part of the, the way that this clinic is, is kind of set up is to be honest with people and uh, honest with people about what to expect in treatment. I always tell people that if you're going to do the exposure and ritual prevention treatments, which includes planned situational exposures, they oftentimes are, are challenging and there's distress associated with that. It's a part of informed consent, what you're kind of getting into. And so even things like language. So, you know, a lot of uh, researchers historically have used the term SUDS in doing exposure-based treatments and asked their clients to rate SUDS, which stands for Subjectives Units of Distress. Really what they're saying is distress. Rate your distress on a scale of one to 10. To me, it's a little bit like, I'd rather just say that what it is, it's distress. And uh, in fact, there's some reason to believe that 
that being able to process that with language and talk about it, use words to acknowledge the actual feelings. What is the distress? I'm feeling very scared. Um, I feel a strong sense of disgust or guilt. That that's probably therapeutic too. So it's not just a matter of principle. It's a matter of what I think I think would be most helpful for the clients. So those are kind of some of the things that we try to do. Yeah, and so we'll, we'll try to make it into an experiment, right? We do. I do experiments with people all the time, right? Would either of you be willing to do an experiment with me? Yeah, sure. All right. I want you to do me a favor. Tell me what you had for lunch last Tuesday. Oh boy. Maybe this is expected. Honestly, I can't remember. You can't. Okay. Here's the question. How did you forget that? Yeah, I guess life happened and enough things got in the way between last Tuesday and today. Okay. So would you say it's fair to characterize that as the the thought kind of went away on its own? I'm sure Tuesday after lunch, you remembered what you ate, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so an experiment I might do is I want you, it's about people trying to quote, get rid of thoughts, unwanted thoughts, because obsessions are typically unwanted. People want to get rid of them. And so there's one experiment for you to do is today after you have lunch or today, whenever you, you eat, I, I don't you, actually, you have dinner coming up, I believe. I want you to work real hard on forgetting your dinner. Okay. I want you to think about what you can do on your own. And no matter what you do, I want you to forget what you have for dinner. Okay. And then of course, now I'm working with you. Right. And I'll say to you next week, how'd you do with forgetting your dinner? And you could take a wild guess on this, but I, sure. you know, I've, I've had enough practice and ex- experience with this. Take a wild guess. Say, you know, I can tell you what I had for dinner. Interesting. So what, it, what does that say about, you know, we, we do experiments. What does it say about how your mind works? And, and that, that's the metacognitive therapy part of OCD that we, we do. And so if we view all of these other things, these exposure and ritual preventions and experiments, what happens to your feelings, your sensations, if you sit with this long enough? Let's have, build this curiosity together. Because that's how the treatment really is most effective is if the interventions are prolonged and the person works on that. So I know as people who have expertise and practice with motivation interviewing, you can see how these fit together, right? Because you're having a conversation with uh, the person and you're kind of building upon their strengths and their resources, their own fund of knowledge of the way they know that things work and their own ability to kind of deduce things as they go through. They can figure things out, right? So you're bringing things to people's awareness and then inviting them to consider what do you want to do with this? Now that you yeah. notice this or now that you've made this connection, what thoughts or ideas have you got about what you might do differently about it? And what's very clear is, is that it's almost like when, when you did that experiment with Seb, part of what you were identifying and exploring was just that idea of, in, in MI terms, the self-talk. You know, the language, that, the way we talk to ourselves is what's getting reinforced. And part of our role as an MI practitioner is to soften some of what's called sustained talk and support what's called change talk. But it sounds like part of the sustained talk or the obsessional talk is actually the behavior, the, the target behavior in this conversation. And just relating back for somebody who hasn't really worked very much with anybody with OCD, it's interesting to hear as you describe it, it's recognizing that the obsessive behavior, the obsessive thinking itself has a protective thread to it. It serves to protect, but as with many problematic behaviors, including drinking, what started off as an effort to keep me well now develops a secondary problem. And then the effort then is to, to change that. But it sounds like it's interesting. Is it useful then, I suppose, probably not from an MI perspective, but from your support of someone with OCD to try and understand what that original effort to protect them was and how else they might go about doing it now in a way that is 
less distressing. Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really a good description, Glenn, because the behavior therapy people, uh, I want to say behavior therapy people, the experts in, in behavior therapy that have come up with strategies and ideas to help people with OCD, they would say that kind of what you're, you're saying is that, yeah, of course, there's a function, right? And so behavior therapists are really interested in function. They'll say function over form is an important thing. And I think that's true with OCD. What's the function of, of this ritual? The ritual is to neutralize the distress that goes along with the obsessive thought. In the short term, that's the function, kind of like we're talking about the, the analogy with, with drinking. Maybe in the short term, of function of, of drinking is a sense of relaxation or a sense of, of relief from something very distressing in your life. But in the long term, what's been happening for, for you when you've been drinking more and more, kind of raising people's awareness of, of those kinds of, of issues. Yeah, there's there's that aspect with OCD too, where the, the rituals engaging in these ritual activities to cope with the feelings and cope with the obsessions in itself can be very difficult, can cause a lot of challenges. To me, it's interesting that what's changed over time is that when people come in for help now compared to 20 some years ago, information is so much more widely available. It's rare that people are, are not already aware of that. And so typically what people will say to me now is they'll say, I know that this is not good. I know that I'm engaging in a process that's taking me away from where I want to be, but I just, I'm stuck. I can't, I can't get out of it. I'm, I'm in the, the grasp of this process. What can I do to, to help to make changes? What can I do? And at the same time, kind of what I think what, what Glenn's hinting here is so important is I'm absolutely terrified to give up this ritual. If I give up this ritual, can you guarantee me, can you reassure me that something horrible won't happen? Going back to the example of touching the elevator button, can you guarantee me that if I stop doing these rituals, that I won't get OCD and spread it to my child? And of course, as an OCD therapist, the right answer is, unfortunately, no, <laughs> I cannot guarantee you that. In fact, no one can, right? And that, that's part of, of learning to better manage the OCD is, is learning to accept and cope with that uncertainty or cope with those, those thoughts and feelings. That can be terrifying depending on. So, so usually what we need to do is put many rungs in the ladder. We need to really help people to get from point A to point, point Z. And it's usually not a, a simple thing. It's not just like, oh, I have to stop doing these rituals, they usually know that. They usually know their goal is to identify and eliminate ritualistic behaviors. That's maintaining the OCD. But but how do I do this? I say, I'm going to do it. I make resolve. I'm going to do it. And then the trigger happens and I go right back to doing it. We have to be kind of creative. We have to really work together, uh, find ways to slowly, typically dismantle these OCD patterns. Yeah. And so it's usually a gradual process. And you can see where maybe in a more explicit way, how MI fits in to some of these conversations where a motivational challenge emerges, right? So someone, they're coming to see you in the first place. So they're clearly seeking something at some point in this process with them. They are confronted, not necessarily you confronting them, but they are confronted with the next step along this path for me is to let go of this ritual that has become really disruptive to my life yet is soothing, it makes me feel safe, it's predictable, it's all these sorts of things. You can kind of see how MI fits in those particular parts of the conversation to try to help somebody. I imagine there's some exploration of change talk there and to see what someone's life would be like without 
these rituals. And at the same time, you're, you're kind of weaving in these experiments. So for instance, the experiment that you and I did earlier around, I'm going to try to forget what I have for dinner tonight. That strikes me maybe as, as a way to gently enter into the world that or, or into the reality that the level of control that we think we have on what comes and goes in our mind is we have much less control than we think we do. And this is kind of a long-winded, wondering, musing summary, if you will, I invite you to just kind of respond to any of that, Jim. I think what you're, you're kind of bringing up for me is, is this idea of how do we integrate these strategies and approaches to help people, what's going to work and I kind of led us down this path a little bit on this metacognitive path, which is kind of an interesting curiosity of how our mind works and why things, why the thoughts keep coming back. You know, what I'm hoping the person can arrive at through experimentation and looking at their own, just their own reality is, is that thought suppression is very ineffective in the long run. We know that it's a strategy that many people with OCD turn to. In fact, we all turn to this, right? <laughs> you know, we, we get distressing news, you know, you go to the doctor and you find something out you didn't want to hear. and then. You've got a work meeting an hour later. Well, I need to block that out. I can't go into my work meeting thinking about, you know, whatever might be going on with my, what my doctor said. So, yeah, we, we all try to do this, but, and so people with OCD uh, instinctively try to do thought suppression as a strategy and it, and it typically backfires. It typically predictably because the experts can give us all these detailed fascinating explanations why, but, but I can say on a practical level that thought suppression usually doesn't work. We, we can't control that. So in a way, it's like, it's a, a bit of a reversal in terms of undoing some of our natural instincts, right? Things that we, we think are going to be helpful for us in a certain process, and, and they're actually not. We come up with a lot of metaphors, a lot of strategies based upon metaphors. Um, you know, we all can relate to this, this metaphor about being in quicksand. And I remember as a child being terrified of quicksand. <laughs> I don't think there's any quicksand anywhere where I lived, but just heard about it and so forth. And the more you try to go and move fast, the more you agitate the soil beneath you, the faster you sink. And so the exact opposite of what you think you need to do, which is to stay calm and maybe spread yourself out and lay down or make yourself not sink is kind of what you need to do with quicksand. So metaphors like that, I, I think, really apply to this because what we're going to be trying to to teach people is we, we're trying to, to teach them a little bit about other alternative strategies that they could employ. And this is where I'm saying it goes back and forth with MI, because MI is not about teaching people, right? MI is about kind of evoking, pulling from within, what do they already know? If I'm thinking about, wow, this person really needs some alternative coping strategies besides the rituals, I'm of course thinking MI, what do they already know works for them? What do they know they can do instead of doing these rituals versus what I would spend time trying to find a way to teach them? Because it just may not hit home. This, you know, this other alternative strategy that I come up with is not going to necessarily be helpful, but they might have some great ones. And some of the most amazing creative ways to accomplish things have actually come from my clients. I have a whole list of activities, things that experts have shared with me, things other clients have shared with me, books I've read and so forth. But some I'll give you an, an example where you know, working on someone with uh, contamination OCD, and they were kind of in the middle of the process. And the person's idea was to adopt a puppy. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. You know, what's going on there? What do you mean? I cannot think of a better way to randomly create contamination than a puppy. <laughs> maybe, maybe a baby. But bringing this puppy into this person's life was perfect because there was this absolute ability to will bring his guard down, this like love, this affinity to want to be with this puppy. And 
Puppies make messes. Puppies contaminate your environment. Puppies don't know all these OCD rules that when you go from this room to that room, you have to take your shoes off or you have to do this or you have to do you know all these rituals. So the puppy would just come right in and, and jump on the bed and, and lick the person's face and all the things that the kind of ways that the safe zones that this person had created were severely interrupted by this puppy. And the progress in this person's treatment was phenomenal within a period of a few weeks. I would say they accomplished what you know, kind of traditional approaches would have done over months. Does that mean I'm going to recommend my next client have a puppy? Absolutely not. My, my, I wouldn't dare. My point is their idea, their strategy at that point was so valuable. And it was something I, I would have never have suggested or come up with, right? We brainstorm, we come up with ideas, but yeah. Yeah. So there's so much an intermingling of the approaches, but ultimately it's about what's going to work best for this person. And what comes across so obviously is, is that that effort to almost expert balance. You have all this information, you know, all these techniques, you have been shown these strategies and they are all available if this other person feels a need for them from you. But your instinct is to evoke a way forward for them, to build on, on where they're already at, to recognize this person got this far without me. It's recognizing whatever strategy that you're using that's causing them distress was in itself an effort to protect them from a distress. They know how to keep themselves safe because they've made it this far. And you're just working on what other ideas have you got or what might work for you. And, and it's almost like recognizing that the experience is the outworking of a, a form of ambivalence because, again, there's the effort to protect, but also the experience of the distress. Origin is of both of those things is the same, which is this thought or this behavior. And what it is, you're just being curious with them and then exploring how else might you do this and supporting them with that. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it does fit. You know, am I, we go back and forth and certainly a lot of people have been trying to figure this out about how do we integrate things like a motivational interviewing with, with CBT. I know that there were some research studies done, uh, I believe around 2010, 2012, around, around that time, how to, how to integrate motivation interviewing with efforts for OCD. And I'll say it's challenging. It's difficult. It's not easy. Not easy as someone who has a fair amount of training and and experience with both. I guess what I would say is you really have to be in the moment. And what I mean by that is Glenn was saying, like, maybe the idea is to kind of let the person come up with their own ideas. And I gave that example. But many times, if you're listening very carefully, what the people are saying is is the, the client might say, I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. I really need help. This is beyond me in terms of what I can come up with. Everything that I come up with is, is not working. It's getting worse. The more I try to fix this, the more my OCD seems to, to blossom and flourish. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and more frustrated or more and more demoralized. And that's the hard part is, as a therapist, I think, is that you're, you're really in the moment and you're kind of going back and forth with sharing conceptualization and sharing ideas and, and feedback. Does this work? Does this work? But sometimes as the therapist, I think the client is relying on me to give them some real specific guidance, right? Part of my role is to say, I don't know how we're going to do this specifically, all the details, but I still think this is where we could go or what you could try to really kind of escape some of this, this OCD cycle and you can get maybe see some benefit in your, in your life. But even if I'm doing that, even if I'm guiding, hopefully it's based upon their goals based upon their values, things that are important in their life. Uh, we haven't really spoke about that, but 
but I think that that's that's important. So is kind of going back to what are what are what is the person value? Why are they wanting to do something different in their life about the OCD? Typically, it's things related to their relationships or their own personal desires, things that they want to accomplish in life. We want to kind of stay open to the idea of kind of going back and forth and integrating client-centered with these really kind of guided, more directive approaches, the exposure and response prevention or exposure and ritual prevention. That's the hard part in my mind is how you go real time to go back and forth. And so I know the research studies were kind of like, they would preload, I call it MI preloading. And I think this is a model that many people have spoke about with other types of things. So, which means you start off by doing one or two sessions of motivational interviewing. Why are you coming into treatment? What are you hoping to accomplish? What do you see as your strengths? What do you see as some of the potential barriers? How can you get through those barriers and, and, and be effective? And, and, and it doesn't matter what kind of treatment you're, it could be substance use treatment, it could be OCD treatment, it could be anything. And so you do this preloading of MI, trying to enhance and build person's motivation to start the treatment. Then they have these things where something might trigger the therapist to switch gears and say, now I'm going to go from, I'm going to go back to MI because they're, they're quote stuck. They're, Glenn's saying they're, they're showing signs of ambivalence. They want to change and they don't want to change. And so I need to help them resolve that. I'm not saying that that's, that model is not the right model. I'm saying what works for me is to stay more real time, more back and forth that I'm integrating MI on a moment-to-moment basis when I'm doing the, the behavior therapies. If I don't need to do any motivational interviewing, if the person is motivated and they're willing to participate and they're benefiting from the therapies, I stop. I want to stop doing MI because someone said, to, uh, they said, if, if the person's already motivated, you can only go one direction, which is to de- demotivate them. So, so cut that out and just you know help them go quickly through the behavior therapy. And, and sometimes that's, that's what you need to do is to really kind of step back. And, and even though it might be very inviting to kind of talk more about their, their change talk or something, sometimes you kind of need to get out of their way and let them do their behavior therapy, let them have their moments of, of challenge, let them have some, some stress. And, you know, everyone kind of has their own path. It's usually not linear. It's usually not without some challenges. So that's kind of normalizing that process is kind of being there with them, supporting them with it, but not trying to MI your way through the whole thing. Sometimes you need to kind of let them do it and uh, let, let them have their successes and then come back. So I, I'd say communication is the big thing, being able to create an environment where your client can say to you, hey, this isn't working for me. I know you're trying to help me, but the way you're doing this, the things you're saying, it's not helpful. And not just me, but even with OCD treatment, a lot of times we try to recruit or encourage a social support, someone to come with them and be there with them for the treatments when they're doing the planned exposures. Maybe they want their, their partner or a friend or a loved one to be there. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they, they say, oh, no, that's, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to help me and support me. That makes me feel worse. I feel more stress. I feel more pressure. I really want or need to do this on my own. And so it's really more about communication. It's more about like kind of really listening, being open, open to it. And there might be reasons why they don't want that person there. You know, there, there might be very valid 
reasons. Well, Jim, this seems like a great time to hear and feel how it is you would work with someone. You just offered us a lot of rich descriptions of some of the ideas, some of the theories, some of the specific techniques. And so we had talked about doing a bit of a role play. This seems like a great time for that. So we're going to role play a scenario where I am a person with OCD who has come to get help from you. We are not going to do a first session which is often how role plays go. We're, we're going to kind of fast forward things a little bit. So this is a return visit. You're my OCD therapist trying to help me navigate life in a different way. So let's okay. kind of hear how this And let's just sound. add to that a little bit. And let's say that going back to this OCD, one, two, three, the, the second phase, you've already, you and I have had a chance to talk about setting the stage, so to speak, prepare for the exposure interventions and so forth. So we've built a rapport, a shared understanding, and we've been working together. Okay. Yep. Sounds great. All right. And would you like me to call you Seb? I'm picking sure. up that this is okay. Yeah, that works. Refers to you. So, so. Yeah. okay, Seb. So just to kind of bring us up to speed, I remember when we uh, met last time, we were talking a lot about your beliefs about your beliefs. We, we spent some time reviewing your metacognitions and we had done some work together on that, like whether these thoughts are really that important or whether they're really that dangerous. And you had some thoughts about your being around your son. And then we talked about continuing to practice the exposure activity that we did together in session. So you and I, we had spent about, I think it was about 40 five minutes together where you were holding your baby boy. We kept checking in together as time went on over how distressed you were, what feelings you were having and thoughts. And you'd shared with me right around minute 25, there seemed to be kind of a break point there where your feelings of fear started to come down a little bit. And then for the last, I looking back at my notes here, it says that your stress uh, was rated uh, out of 10. It was a two out of 10 a three out of 10. And then you said it went back up to four out of 10. And I said, what happened? You said, well, I was, I was worried now that the session was over, that I wasn't there with you, that you were afraid all the sessions would come back again and so forth. So I thought we'd kind of start by talking about that. Like bring, bring me up to speed. What happened at the end of our, our session when you were there with, around your, your son and dealing with the, the obsessions about giving him cancer and stuff like that? Yeah, well, that was, uh, I was actually quite surprised I even got as far as I did. When you had introduced the idea of me bringing my son to your office, I had a, an immediate initial reaction of, that. well, there's no way I'm going to do that. And then I may have even mentioned that this feels like it's going much faster than I thought it would. And so I, I was pretty terrified of bringing him into a place. I was imagining all the other people that had sat in the same seat that I sat in and making sure that he wouldn't touch the arms of the chair or get on the floor or sit on the couch next to me. Or, Coming you know. into it, you had a lot of predictions, you know, just kind of re rephrase what you're saying here. You had a lot of ideas. You were really kind of, your mind was going over and over again about like, this is what might happen. This is what could happen. And a lot of feelings. You said terrified. It sounds yeah. like it was really took a tremendous amount of courage on your part to summon yourself to do that. I'm, I'm <laughs> just going to note that as, as we're going along here. But yeah, the, the courage it took for you to, to, to do that. And then you said that there was, there was also a surprise. I'm kind of curious to hear more about the surprise because that sounds to me very important. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it started to shift from all of the people, again, I, I just kept thinking about all the people that you have met with in your office and all the people that they're in contact with. Surely somebody in 
of all those people, uh, there's got to be somebody with a serious illness or cancer is, is the thing that I'm, I keep getting stuck on. And I guess the surprise was, you know, you had said about the 25 minute mark. It's like at some point I, I kind of forgot that I was terrified. It was just this moment. It was a moment of peace on the one hand and at the same time of, is it okay to feel peace in this moment, if that makes mm. sense. And, and just, you know, and, but it, it really did feel different as I found myself just kind of settling into being in your office, being with you and trusting you and being able to hold my son for, you know, one of the first times in, in a long time where, where I could just hold him and not worry that I'm going to make him sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, you kind of brought up a lot of other questions and a lot of other, you know, experiences for you, but the the one big surprise was that as time went on, the being terrified kind of seemed to subside a little bit. And you weren't even sure what to make of that, right? What is it okay to, to feel this way? Is it okay to, to let go of that? Mm-hmm. And uh, But one of the, the main things we're trying to, to do in our experiments here in our work together is to update and shift your understanding of how your mind works with the OCD, right? Mm-hmm. So what are some ways you might think, you know, think about, we talked a lot about your, your meta belief. So your meta belief was, I, I'm looking back here at what you wrote down. You said one of the obsessive thoughts you have is that if I hold my son, he's going to get cancer. And now you're explaining to me even more of the details about, you know, the him touching the chair and, and so forth, that it could, the contamination could spread. That that thought, having that thought meant that your son was your was at higher risk of getting cancer, that you're doing something to put him at risk, right? And so that thought was very important and you rated it. I'm looking back here. It says you rated that thought uh, a 90 out of 100. What do you rate it now? Is it still the same or has it changed at all? Well, it's hard to say that it's changed because I still think it. I guess you could say I still believe it. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess what that experience last time allowed me to do is there was just nothing really counteracting it, I guess, uh, you know, before it was just, it was a thing that I just was so stuck on. And I kept thinking about, and maybe there's occasionally, I would just wonder to myself, this sounds crazy, because I know that I can't give my baby cancer in this way. But it, it was just those were fleeting moments that just really had little to no impact on my moment to moment experience and just being in the office with you and just having that realization of like, wow, I'm, I was able to experience holding my baby without the kind of pressure and terror of, of contaminating him and contaminating myself. I guess it offers a bit of a balance to that sort of thread that keeps coming back. It's not that I've, I haven't stopped thinking that since our last session. I don't know if it's showing up less or not, I feel like it's so difficult. Don't get me wrong. It's like, it offers like a way to, to kind of take a deep breath by remembering that time in the office. Of course. Yeah. What you're saying is that the thoughts are there. Feedback you give me is there hasn't been much change or much shift in terms of the meaning of, meaning of the thought. And just a, a quick time, not a timeout, but just kind of a, a quick aside here is it kind of one of the goals is 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 to sh- shift or update the, the, what we call valuation of the thought, how, how important or how you, you're saying how true it is, right? I still believe this is true, right? So my goal is to kind of help you with with that to kind of shift this to not thinking it doesn't mean it's true, but we're not it, that that didn't change, okay? So I I I that didn't happen. So I'll let that go and go back to therapy and say what you did notice was the shift in your emotions, right? 
Okay. Right. So I'll go back to, to, to being more enrolled. So yeah, understood. And, and of course, you've been thinking these things for quite some time. It's been a really an entrenched pattern for you. And uh, it's not going to just shift, change, and go away that quickly. And you and I have also talked about what it's been like for you to be a dad, this incredible, awesome sense of responsibility you have, how much you've, you've thought of and all this time you want to be a dad and you're excited about being a dad. And of course, you're going to worry about your kid being hurt, whether it's getting cancer or, you know, dads worry about dropping their kids down the stairs and hitting their head or off the back of their, their pickup truck when they're putting their shoes on. So, of course, you're going you're gonna to keep thinking that. And of course, there's some reality to that. There's some truth to that. You know, your, your child is at risk because they're a baby and they're vulnerable. And part of you being a good dad is, is recognizing that and, and taking care of your, your baby, making sure that they, they don't get hurt and doing what you can to, to prevent them from, from getting uh, diseases, all diseases and stuff. So we need to be careful that we're uh, recognizing that too, right? That, that this is not going to probably go away real quickly, right? But what I'm really pleased to hear is that in this activity, this experiment, it sounds like you've noticed the shift in the, in the emotions. The, the, the thought hasn't changed so much about what, what it means and, and how, whether or not it's true, how important those thoughts are. But you've, you've recognized that that sense of terror has been able to go, go down. And, and that, to me, is meaningful in your treatment as your therapist it doesn't matter if it's meaningful to me. I'm kind of curious, is it meaningful to you? Yeah, it offered, I guess it gave me a bit of hope, I suppose you oh. could say. You know, because honestly, when I, I came to see you willingly, of course, but, you know, my my wife was pretty serious about me needing to get help. I knew I needed help. I just didn't really believe that there was help for what I was experiencing. And, you know, and, and it's been pretty eye-opening to kind of go through the process so far. I know there's more work to be done. I guess, yeah, with, with having that moment of relief and then being able to kind of come back to it and remember it, it does offer a bit of hope as to how this might progress going forward. Well, that's great feedback. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I think there is hope. I agree with you in that regard. So for now, what maybe we can kind of summarize and say is that building this hope is important, having hope that, that things can change in some ways, that your, your experiences in this can, can change over time, and that you can find some improvement. You know, in your words, you said before, some, what it would be a success to spend more time with your, your son and, and give your, your wife a, a break in terms of having some, some time where you're more in, in quote, supervising or in charge of your son would be a, an initial goal uh, for you in terms of what would be a success. I think maybe we're going to go, let's go back to that and, and kind of uh, put our minds together about how we can get from where you're at now to, to there, because that seems like a important next step for you is to be able to deal with some of that pressure. I know you said before, you're concerned about how this is impacting your, your relationship with your wife and so forth. So what ideas do you have in terms of what might be a next goal in terms of, we talked before about setting up these experiments, these situational, these planned exposures. What do you think might be a good thing for you at this point? I think the good thing to do right now is to get out of role. Okay. <laughs> and that would be a, a wonderful way to kind of signal how you get into that, maybe that more of that planning process between that session and the next session. We can debrief that a bit. So I guess then as someone observing this, if it's okay, inviting you just to take a breath now and to step away from the role 
and come back to being demonstrated with the, in the podcast. And just to, for me now to be curious with you about what was that like for you? And so if it's okay, can we maybe just start with yourself, Seb, and just explore the patient's experience of, of that intervention? Yeah, I think one of the things that really stood out was when you used that affirmation Jim, you said courage, you know, it took a lot of courage. And it's interesting as an MI trainer and practitioner and someone who's, you know, thinking about affirmations and, you know, it, it surprised me, honestly, I, you know, trying to be, I'm no method actor, I'm sure, but trying to be in role as much as I can and as much as I could. And I didn't feel courageous in that moment, mm. but just, it was just interesting that to see kind of how that got folded in just so naturally into that part of the, the conversation. That was one of the things that really stood out to me. But as a whole, just like, you know, just that accepting style. I mean, just really accepting of, of what I was going through and, and really curious about it. And also your use of, I guess, another thing too, is it's clear that a lot of what, well, at least some of what guides your work is anchored in some data that you collect at the front end from these the evaluation tools that you use and seeing how you kind of bring those back into the mix at that subsequent session. So just a couple of kind of loose. So can I maybe just tease out that because you you mentioned the affirmation, the impact of it and and certainly yeah. anybody who, who's listened to the podcast recognizes the significance of affirmations and motivation. Viewing. But there was something about receiving that affirmation, even in role. It was almost like the gym could see something from a different perspective. What happened for you and, and what impact did that have on you, even in this role play, that people can take away to understand just the significance of what happens when someone experiences an authentic affirmation in any helping conversation? In the role, I'm still in it, mm. you know, still in the muck and the mm. struggle. And so feeling courageous while still struggling, that might be pretty discrepant or might be mm. pretty hard to like connect with both of those. And so hearing the the affirmation was maybe it aided in the hopefulness that I Mm. alluded to later on in the conversation that there was, you know, kind of a, it offered a bit of a bridge in a way. I mean, I could see how it could be so discrepant that someone hears an affirmation like that and they're, they just reject it or push it away. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and we should all kind of be at some level prepared for that when we mm. offer an affirmation, but at least for me in the role, it offered me a bit of a life raft, I suppose. Mm. So a bit like asking you, did, what did you eat last Tuesday? I'm just wondering, Jim, were you conscious do you remember offering an affirmation and, and what was happening for you? What made you decide to do that in, at that point during the conversation with Seb? Yeah, it was not an intentional or conscious mm. effort. I was, I'll say this, going into the, to shifting into the role play, I was, I was really focused on what can I do from a motivational <laughs> interviewing standpoint to demonstrate some things. So I was trying to to ask questions. I know I asked a closed-ended question. Hopefully it was still evocative in um, in terms of what what whether the the reduction in in or the change, the shift in emotion was meaningful to to him. It was, you know, trying to go back and forth. And I was trying to demonstrate about this uh what I call two-way communication, going, you know, making sure that throughout the process we're communicating a lot and exchanging. It's a little bit artificial in the sense that typically when I'm doing OCD therapy, like where we're, where we're talking about this phase of the treatment, I usually have things planned in the session for the session. And I usually have planned two or three things. We could today go back and we're going to repeat the exposure we did last week. And mm. we're going to practice and, and get better and better at that. Or 
we could, here's two other things we could try. We could try bringing it up a little, increasing the challenge. So kind of giving the person choices, but I was trying to focus more on kind of setting it up, setting up the discussion. So yeah, it wasn't intentional to offer an affirmation. It just really felt sincere right. that, you know, I'm, I'm, if I'm expressing empathy, I can empathize with, with him. He's telling me that this is terrifying to bring, bring my child into this office because, you know, his mind is saying, I may be putting my child in harm's way. Mm. And so, wow. Yeah. That took a lot of, a lot of courage for him to, to come in and, and to, to do that. That was really, you know, to me, it was, it was a sign of strength. Yes. Uh, and so I, I wanted to recognize that and, and uh, validate that as really critical because some techniques work, some techniques don't. Uh, but I know if we can get on this process where he's utilizing his strengths, he's more engaged, he's willing to start doing things that systematically over time, he can get better at managing his OCD. Mm. That's probably going to be good. That's mm. probably going to be successful. I don't know how much his symptoms are going to go down. Hopefully, they go down a great deal. But it's not always the case for everyone. You know, OCD, you know, if we're being honest, it doesn't go away. It's not something that we cure with therapy. The goal is to learn to live life with it. And so for, you know, the, the role that, that Seb was in, I want to help support him be a, in his mind, what is a good father? What's in a, you know, <laughs> and now he's also worried about his relationship with his wife. So I want to support him with that. You know, I want to also, you know, acknowledge there's a possibility that these thoughts might not go away. In fact, the people that I've worked with over the years that have had the most success with OCD, not one has said to me that, that's had really positive results. It's completely gone away. I don't have OCD anymore. I know there are cases like that that people talk about. That's never been my experience. Instead, what my clients say, they say things like, you know, I still have those thoughts. I still, I think to myself, you know, when I'm dressing, now, now my boy's three or four years old. And, and I have the luxury of staying in touch with my clients for years and years, not, not for doing therapy for years and years, but they'll disappear and then they'll come back a year or two later and say, my OCD is back or something's going on in life, a new challenge, and I, I want some support. So I had that luxury of seeing people over the years and they'll tell me, they're like, no, I still have the thoughts it still pops into my head that, you know, maybe when I drop my kid off now at daycare that I'm giving them cancer, but that thought I've learned to live with it. It kind of, it passes through me mm. or it comes and goes. And I, 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 I realize it's part of being a dad. It's almost like someone who's, who's an ex-smoker has a craving for a cigarette. It comes, yeah. it goes. It's what we do with that is what's, what has changed. It's the yeah. relationship with the thought. It's the relationship with the emotion. And it's okay just to bring, just, just at that point, I've written down there was a choice point in, in what you were describing. And you noticed that Seb was identifying his thoughts and his emotions. There, was not, there wasn't very much movement on his thoughts, but there was a shift in his emotions. And it was almost like, again, from an MI perspective, you were identifying this is sustained talk. He, the sustained talk was in the thoughts, but the change talk was in the emotions. So you acknowledged the sustained talk and then shifted to explore in more detail the change talk around his emotions. And you pursued that and to encourage the development of that and then created a collaborative direction to support his autonomy going, what do you want to do next? Of course, yeah. Double-sided reflection, you could say. 
definitely we want to focus on what is improving, what people are able to do, what they're quote successful with. I'm, I want, you can't see me because I'm not I'm making air quotes when I say success. It's a yes. very loaded term, but therapists can kind of get pulled into that of kind of going with what they call gains or success. And so we really need to check in a lot with the other person. What's it feel like? Is that, is that helpful? I'll tell you most of my, a lot of my training early on with, with OCD, the behavior therapy, it's, it's uh, it kind of, it goes like we have an effective treatment for it. So let's kind of get people into it. And I, I think that's where the, the old model of MI is. We have this effective thing. If we can just get people to start doing it, we can gauge them and get them in it. They'll get better. And that's what I'm saying. That's where I started out with, with MI in terms of integrating this stuff. I've shifted over the years and say it's, it, I'm not so sure that if we get people into this treatment, it's always going to be effective. We really have to have a sense of humility. And if we're honest with ourselves and with, with our clients, this is a lifelong pattern. And one of the, to me, one of the interesting and unique things about OCD is that the very nature of the obsessions oftentimes reveal some of the greatest values and strengths of our clients. Mm. I almost guarantee you, go back to this role play with Seb, he's a caring dad. I know he is. <laughs> if he's obsessing about something going wrong with his kid, to me, I'm saying, okay, he's a protector or a caregiver. He's there's there's something about him and his his being. And this stuff is deep. It's probably from. I mean, we don't do this therapy in OCD, but it probably comes from his childhood, mm. his relationship with his dad, his what was good about his dad, or why he you know respected him and felt mm. protected by him, or it could be, you know, a lot of times OCD is related to things related to traumas, related to things in life that don't go well. Maybe we can argue, think of it, it's a primal, right? This, this, this desire to kind of take care of our, our offspring, our children is a kind of a primal desire. So it, it, there's multiple levels and layers of this that we're, we don't really get into typically that, in the, at least not in the beginning of the OCD. Mm. Mm. But I say that because that's what I'm saying. It's, it's important as a therapist to have a sense of humility about that. And sometimes I don't even know why he's reacting. I have to make guesses. Mm. And so be careful not to assume all these things, but make guesses and formulate these guesses, formulate these hypotheses openly with him about what it's like to be a dad. And, 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 and sometimes discussing those things, those little moments where we talk about these things, about this, uh, sometimes a client will say, you know, I had this insight. I had this awareness that some of my OCD was related to these experiences I had as a child or other things. And it doesn't make the OCD go away, mm. but I feel a little bit better. I feel a little bit like I'm more able to take this on and deal with it and cope with it and manage it because it makes more sense to me now. Or I can see where it's coming from and, and kind of how, how I've developed it and stuff. And so all these things can be, can be valuable, right? Mm. It can be important. Well, I've no doubt that having listened to your, your conversation and, and then witness the, the intervention, there will be people listening to this will have their, their appetites whetted. And I'm just curious, Jim, if some of the audience have questions for you after this episode, would it be, would it be okay for them to contact you? And if it was, what would be the best and most appropriate way of, of reaching out to you? Oh, absolutely. They can reach me through the website I mentioned, OCD123, if you um, request a, to email from there, the email will eventually make its way to me. And, and is uh, that OCD123.com? That's a good point. It's OCD123.us. .us. <laughs> Someone already had the .com. All right. <laughs> so I went with OCD123.us. And if you just Google my name, Jim Carter, PhD, you probably can find me other ways too. 
um, always happy to share ideas and bounce ideas in terms of what works. And I'm open to learning. Mm. Um, you know, like I said, this is really what I wanted to share today was based upon my experience of helping people with OCD in the last 20 years. It's I'm not offering this as a prescription or a training, but more as like a sense of humility. It's, it's, it's challenging. It's very difficult to go back and forth with MI and, and any kind of other approach, but in this case, the, you know, the, the behavior therapies. But I think it's possible, especially, like I said, if you get away from the technique and you focus more on the principles, mm. can we really engage with people and help them and, and explore and access this type of therapy, the exposure enrichment prevention, and still stay very client-centered, very humanistic, very real. Like, yeah, this is this is hard. Mm. I think we can. I think I think that's the the message I want to want to try to say more than anything else is that that's that's my goal, and that works for me as a therapist. And I've and I've I've had the best results with that, and I've, you know, the clients that I've helped the most, there's always been that human connection that you know that I. Well, they'll say things like, I felt like you really got me. You really understood what was going on. That was meaningful. So it actually seems appropriate then that your webpage is ocd.us, given how much that's, collaboration there is. That's fantastic. I didn't even think of it. But yeah, that's a that's wonderful. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. I'll maybe start saying that. It's ocd123.us. For sure, collaborative is the mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. big, big part of it. Yeah. Well, that certainly came through in, in both your descriptions of the work that you do as well as in the role play. So we thank you for joining us. We thank you for having some courage yourself and, and doing the role play. That's always takes some courage to put on that hat in the midst of it. So uh, we really appreciate it, Jim. And Glenn, maybe you can uh, give our listeners some places to find us and to contact us. So as always, on Twitter, we're at Change Talking. On Instagram, we're talking to Change Podcast. On Facebook, we're talking to Change. And then for emails, for questions or information about training, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Well, I wanted to thank both of you. I wanted to thank Sebastian and Glenn. And really nice to have this opportunity to talk to you. And we said at the beginning, I imagine there might be people who are dealing with OCD themselves or they have uh, loved ones, friends, family. There are many resources out there. Uh, a great start would be the uh, if you're not familiar with all the communities and resources to check out the International OCD Foundation. It's a non-for-profit organization worldwide that tries to help people and provide resources and connect people. So that, that and I have no affiliation with with them. It's that not anything I'm you know that I'm a part of or benefits me in any way. But it's always a great starting resource for people. And so I want to send that message and, and message that they're. Lots of ways, lots of approaches to help people with OCD. So if you've had some challenges in the past with accessing care and getting support and getting help, to don't give up. There's there's lots of different ways to go about this and lots of different styles and approaches and people that are willing to help you. So so just know that we as a treatment community, we as, as helpers are, are here to help you and we want to do whatever we can to support you. So re- reach out to me and, and, and reach out to International OCD Foundation. Yeah, great message to find its own. Again, thank you for your time and for your sharing. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. 